So far, if you've been with us through our trek through Mark's gospel, we are uh, three chapters into it, and all of it has been narrative, telling the story, life and times of Christ, uh, events and encounters in, it, in his life. From time to time in Mark's gospel, he'll stop in the narrative discussion and, and launch into a collection or chunks of teaching of Jesus. And uh, we've got that today in, in chapter 4 of Mark, a collection of, of parables. Let me, just before we get into it, give you some lenses to actually see this thing contextually, kind of know where to put it. There's so much in it. Um, but just to remind you what we said when we first started this series, that, that Mark isn't the eyewitness of the account. Mark is drawing a collection of things that speak truth about Jesus. Peter was the one he got the information from. And this is not a sequential outlaying of how Jesus' life went. These are pieces and parts, and specifically here are pieces and parts that talk about, and he uses parables to talk about the kingdom. Remember what parables are. That word actually means to place alongside. It's an illustrative tool. Jesus tells stories to make a point about himself for the kingdom. So, so that's the, the majority of what we're dealing with in these 34 verses. But, but I want you to know why Mark would take a break in the narrative telling of the story to talk about um, the kingdom of God. In fact, if you want to, if you like a file to put this all in today, and it's a lot, you can just write down observations of the kingdom. That's kind of where we're going. Um, but here's why I think he inserts it here. And that's because in, in the story, uh, at least in the first three chapters of the life of Christ, we've already seen growing and significant opposition to Jesus. Remember in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, and it's at that moment in time when they begin to plot to destroy him, the text says. Um, last week, we looked at Jesus and uh, the opposition coming down from Jerusalem. These are now the professional legalists looking for ways to accuse Jesus and trap Jesus. So tensions are, are growing. And, uh, and, and my guess is that the, the followers of Christ, the disciples of Christ, are confused by this tension. From their vantage point, he's the real deal. The disciples see him as the Messiah. They, they see him as the magic man. Everything he does is good, and it's great, and it's positive. So, so what, what's the problem with that? Why is there so much hostility to it? If he's really the true Messiah in their minds, then why are these men who are constantly on the look for the Messiah, why are they unable to see it in him? What, what's the problem? What's the disconnect? Why is there tension? You, you are the professional religious men. We're following who we say our prophets said would come. You're not seeing it. So what's all the, the problems? My guess is there's a bunch of questions that the disciples have. And so here in chapter 4, Mark collects for us the thoughts and the messages that Jesus has shared in parable form that describe the kingdom of God so that the disciples, those followers of Christ, could see and know what to expect in the kingdom. You think tensions and, and problems and resistance is an issue. I'm going to tell you about the kingdom of God. I'm going to describe the people in the kingdom of God. I'm going to describe my intentions in this kingdom. And so that you insiders, you disciples, will know what, what's going on. I think that's what Mark has done in this particular section. And, and just a heads up, it's 34 verses, four parables. Now, no worries, because I figured out a way to do it all real easy. I, I made a slide, just so you know. This is it. So memorize that, and you got it. <laughs> to be honest, on Wednesday when I sat down, I was a little overwhelmed. There's, most people would take a week, at least a week, at each one of these stories to teach uh, specific, significant things about the kingdom and what Jesus believed. We don't have that option today. 
We're going to deal with all of it. And so I'm putting it in the category of eight observations of the kingdom. So if you like points, then today's your day. But before we get into it, I always need help, and we need help. So let's stop and ask for it. Father God, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for our Savior, Jesus. God, I just pray that you'd help our understanding um, when it comes to these stories. God, I pray for uh, your people that we would worship you, and I pray for those who might be just watching that they would uh, know you. God, help us not mess this up. Help us say exactly what you meant it to say. We pray for the Spirit's power now in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, eight observations of the kingdom. Here's the first observation. There are many responses to the king. Okay? Uh, in fact, this passage, if you were here a year ago, uh, we did a small little break from our Roman series and did parables. And almost to the very day, we did Matthew 13, which is Matthew's account of the parable of the sower and the soil. So somehow God wants you to get it. So we got to do it again. Um, but the first 20 verses are the, are the parable that you're very familiar with. And again, like I said, it is many, observ- many responses to the kingdom. Right? And the first response is that some people have a hard heart. Now, I'm going to do this. I'm going to read to you the story version, the parable, and then I'm going to read to you Jesus' interpretation. So follow along with me. We're going to pick it up in verse 3 and 4 and then go to verse 15. Again, this is Jesus, and he says, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and birds came and devoured it. Now skip down to verse 15. And he said, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Jesus is the master illustrator. He is the best preacher that's ever lived. And so he takes stories that would fit right in their culture, right in their day. And he brings to life significant truth about the kingdom. Specifically in this scenario, he starts talking about paths. That this is specifically, this, this seed falls on a, a rocky ground. Now, in that day, fields were separated by these paths, well-worn paths, paths that people walked every day. For hundreds of years, carts and animals walked on this path. So if you ever try to put a shovel in Arizona ground, you know what kind of path we're talking about, right? You can't do it, all right? So here's how a, here's how a farmer, a sower, would plant his seed. It wasn't precise. There was no machines. Most of the time, they had a bag of seed, and they would broadcast. They would throw seed. Now, trying to be intentional where it landed, inevitably, seed would land on the path, the hard ground, and just lie there. And in this particular story, Jesus says, birds would come and just snatch it away. And he uses that to describe the hearts of people and some people's response to the king and the kingdom and the story of of the gospel. You can cast the seed, which is the story of the good news, that Jesus saves sinners. And for some reason, people hear that truth, and it just ricochets off the heart. To them, they they hear the story of God leaving heaven and taking on flesh and willingly going to the cross to die in someone else's place to transfer righteousness and perfectness to people who couldn't do it on their own. And some people hear that story and go, get real. It just ricochets. They don't understand it. In fact, they have a competitive truth and they think there's some other thing that matters. The gospel is irrelevant to them. They've kind of trained their hearts and their minds to turn and tune God out. The Bible calls them stick-necked people. They've got what I would call a gospel immunity. 
it doesn't have a place. It, it won't make a, its way in. And by the way, if you're paying attention to the, even kind of the subject matter of this, these are people who have, most of the time, surprisingly enough, people who sit close enough to this word that they can be revealed as someone who resists. We're not talking predominantly about people who've never heard. We're not talking about people predominantly who are so far away that if you just introduced them to this, this wonderful idea of a savior, they might sit up, lean into the conversation. These are people who know or think they know enough to say that's stupid, that's foolish, that's ignorance. These people, just excuse me for a second, these people end up in churches and they have Bibles and they've read it enough to be dangerous and they think it it's, doesn't apply or it's a ridiculous statement and so they just kind of shut it off. Here's what Jesus says about these people. When that truth, when that gospel seed lands, Satan is somewhere in proximity to snatch away that opportunity for it to take root. Let me describe to you what I think are some of the options of what that might look like. It could be that you, you sit under like this wonderful message where, and it's so compelling, the story that your sin can be so forgiven and forgotten by God, and you're invited into the story of God to live forever with God, and maybe right on the heels of that wonderful, free from, from work and effort, gospel alone, by grace alone, there's a false teacher somewhere nearby who says, you know, that's not true. The only way to sort it out with God is to have your good pile be bigger than your bad pile, and, and you've got to work at it and just work at it. And, and so some people are, that, that seed is snatched away because someone's lied to them and suggested that the good news that Jesus saves sinners isn't good enough. Some people have a fear of others, and that steals it. You might be a wife with an, it's sitting in a, a sermon all by yourself, and God's moving your heart, and yet you're doing the math. Wait a minute, if I go home with this, my husband's not going to like it. Or opposite, my, my wife's going to not like it. My boss, my family, all these people are going to resist this in me, and it's too, it's too expensive. I just, I can't go there. And so there's this, you know, what I would call the idol of man that makes it kind of dissipate. There's this dirty word called pride that Satan uses to snatch it away too. Some people look at this story we call the good news, and I've always, I've always told you that the good news starts with bad news, and the bad news is you're farther, farther worse than you ever feared, right? That you're broken and twisted, and, and God's standard is holiness, and some people look at that and go, not me, and, and I don't have that problem. I was, um, I have to apologize for this, I was on YouTube, okay? And I was looking at sermons on YouTube, which is not, I do not recommend looking at sermons on YouTube, but... Um, there was a guy that I bumped into who was trying to, to uh, preach against what we believe the Bible says about God's sovereignty in salvation, okay? His very first point was that man isn't bad. That was his argument against God being a savior. And he's in a church with one of these. Okay, so all I'm saying to you is that would be a classic way in which Satan would come in and say, Hey, they, they tell you you're broken, and they tell you you need a Savior, and you're dead in your trans transgressions and sins, but don't believe it, because there's a little bit of good in everybody. Satan could snatch it away when uh, we doubt. Doubt to such a degree that you could not fathom, could not fathom the possibility that somehow this spiritual transfer could take place, like really sinned to this man named Jesus who lived a long time ago that I've never seen and I've never heard, and... Really, the, like his, his goodness, his righteousness can be transferred to me and that God would see me through that lens and pff, that's just too hard to believe. There's, there's doubt in it for me. 
Some people procrastinate. Some, some people sit under this seed teaching of the king and his kingdom, and they're just so distracted. As soon as the message is over, they, they feel something moving in their heart, and they can't, can't wait to get out of here to go back into the mess and, and suddenly lose track of where they were. I've had people stand right up here, tears running down their face, talking about just the immediacy of responding to it, and they've got other things to do. Some people just love their sin too much. What I do is more important than what he offers. And so, Jesus says, here's what you can expect in the kingdom. This message, this wonderful news that I've come to save sinners, it's going out there, it's going everywhere, and you can expect that some people, it's just going to ricochet off. If you want to explain these religious leaders coming down to accuse me, if you want to explain all these resistance to, to me, then just know some people's hearts hard. Here's the second heart that Jesus mentions. It's the shallow heart in verses 5 and 6. He says, other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched since it had no root. It withered away. Now skip down to verses 16 and 17. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves but endure it for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Now, unlike the hard-hearted person who truth just ricochets off, this person jumps in neck deep, both feet, enthusiasm and joy. Th this confuses the church. These people hear this wonderful story and they look like they embrace it, like they, they look like they're in, they look like they love, they look like they understand, but they don't last. And, and here's why. According to Jesus, as soon as the cost of following Jesus is understood and it's real, it's too much. I, did, I didn't know. I didn't know it meant that. I mean, I heard somewhere about Jesus saying, carry your cross. I heard somewhere about Jesus saying that I must be the first love, but I didn't know. I didn't know it was that expensive. Um, I, I've, I've confessed to you in the past that I think the number one pain in my life in ministry is people I look at who I was there when they made a, a confession, when they said they loved Jesus, when they raised their hand in worship only to have them go, not anymore. And, and I, I don't know what to do about that, but I do have some observations about it. I think there's a kind of an epidemic in the modern church, and I think the church at the, in large part is to blame um, because for the most part, it's twisted the gospel. And it's yanked out of the story, the narrative of how God saves people. It's yanked out things like carry a cross. It's yanked out things like suffering. And it's yanked out things like sin and holiness and repentance. It's pulled them out. And it's communicated this gospel that simply wants you to be happy and to you to be whole and to be rich and all these types of things. And so here's what happens to people. This wonderful story, and it's only about this story, how sinners can be reconciled to God and the effects of that reconciliation. That's what this story is about. People have turned it into a tip book about finances and parenting and all these kinds of things. Does it speak truth about those things? Yes, through a gospel lens, but it's not about adjustments. It's about transformation. When the church starts ta stops talking about the absolute standard of righteousness and God's expectations and your need for it, then what happens inevitably somewhere in someone's life who used to believe this and loved it at one point in our minds, 
they jump in for what they think is simply addition. They look at the gospel as this wonderful thing, like more for me. Who wouldn't want to be healthy and happy and whole? Who wouldn't want that? Only to find out the gospel story is really about subtraction. It's less about you. And when you conclude it's less about you, this person, according to Jesus, goes, why, that's not at all what I had in mind. I thought the gospel was an enhancer of me, right? And the gospel says something completely different. It brings a death to you so that he can bring you to life in his image. And that thing is what twists people away from the gospel. Jesus mentions a third response if you're wanting responses to the kingdom. He calls it the the crowded heart, verse 7, and then we're going to skip over to 18 and 19 for the interpretation. Here's what he says in verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain, verse 18 and 19. And others were the ones sown on the thorns. They were those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. I, I think, I think the response of, of those in this crowded heart situation is very similar to those in the shallow-hearted situation. I think they jump in quickly. I think they make some kind of responses, but suddenly tensions, expenses start to arrive. They are attracted to the kingdom, but they never get around to taking it seriously because they've got way too many other affections. Do you understand? Jesus says, I want to give you myself, but you have to take me only for your life. This person says, I would like to add you into my money, into my life, into myself, into my control, and then I'll be okay with that. And Jesus calls those things cares of the world, world and deceitfulness of riches. And he describes them as weeds, weeds that choke out this life-giving truth, that don't allow it to take root. It's love in the world and what it offers competing for our heart's desires. And here's what the scriptures tell us, Matthew 22, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you love something that much, there isn't room for anything else. Jesus is not saying, if you conjure up enough affections for me and work hard at loving me more than anything else, then I'll save you. He says, when I save you, that's what you'll love. You'll love that much. And these people, they, they kind of are attracted a little bit to it. They're in the dirt. The clouds of weeds come around them and choke it out. There's one last response to this kingdom, and that is in verse 8. It's the receptive heart. Here's how Jesus says it. And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Skip to verse 20. But those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Jesus mentions three characteristics of the receptive person, the person who really gets the gospel. One is, he says, this person hears the word. Secondly, he, he accepts the word. And third, he bears fruit. He hears the word, not with your ears. Do you have to entertain language and sort it out and make a decision? But the hearing that he's talking about is talking about a belief. It's putting your trust in what you hear. That's the hearing that Jesus talks about. 
It's recognition of your need and his provision. It's not just mental assent. Do you have to understand it? Yes, but it has to go deep. He says it's also accepting the word. The word in this context is Jesus. It is the gospel story. It it is what it says about me and what it provides. Here's the the part of what it means to accept it. It means um, that we are broken and twisted. It means that no one can stand on his own before a holy God. It means no matter how good or great you could possibly be, you fall short to the glorious standard of God. A person who responds to this gospel is a person who accepts that. And it's an acceptance about us and our condition, and it's an acceptance of him and his provision. He provides a righteous robe to cover my evil. You understand? That's what the gospel says. That's what we're supposed to accept. This is the receptive person who hears my word, accepts my word, and then he says, the person who bears fruit. Not religious work that is an attempt to earn your salvation. Not a ladder to get yourself to God and say, look at me, God. Aren't I impressive? This is transformed living as a result of salvation. This is being saved and having the lights come on and the hearts start to pump and you start to love and care for the things that God cares for and all those things that were so foreign to you before are now present in your life and only one reason, because he saved you. I think it's interesting, Jesus' use of percentage of returns in the crop here kind of skips over us, but farmers in that day at best, at best, saw a 3% return on their grain. So you plant a, a seed, you get back three Jesus drops these ridiculous percentages, 30%, 60%, 100%. Here's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. For the receptive-hearted person, the transformation that God brings into that guy's life or that girl's life is obvious. It's undeniable. The amount of fruit coming out of a legitimate Christian is something everyone's going to say. I remember that guy when he was, and here comes the phrase. I don't understand why he loves. I don't understand why he gives. Why does he adopt those children? Why does he care about this need? Why does he confess to sin? Why is he humble? Here's why. Because it's the fruit of repentance. It's what God does in real believers' lives. It's the receptive-hearted person that Jesus says will produce a harvest. It's a harvest, and it's undeniable. It's what you can expect when when the Scriptures tell us that, that he came to make us new creatures. It's not kidding. Total transformed living. Now, that's point number one. Are you ready to skip lunch? Okay. We're going to pick up the pace here. I want you to notice the second observation of the kingdom. It's in the middle of that last parable, and it is that Jesus is sovereign over the kingdom. This is the question the disciples were asking when he's throwing down these stories to describe what you can expect in the kingdom. They weren't a little confused by it all, and this is what Jesus says in verse, starting in verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. That's a phrase you should remember. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Some writers have called this, again, one of the most difficult teachings of Christ. Like our unforgivable sin last week, this one particular description of what the parables were meant to do, some have described difficult. I I don't personally think it's that hard, and I think the key is understanding this word secrets in in verse 11, and specifically that he has given the secrets. The word secret 
does not mean what we typically think of when we think of it. It doesn't mean um, mysterious or complicated. Here's what it means. It means something which is totally unintelligible to the person who has not been initiated into its meaning. And for those who have been initiated into its meaning, it is obvious. It is exactly like your conversion experience. Somewhere, some of you were adults when the lights came on. And you remember when you used to hold one of these or look at one of these and it looked ridiculous to you? It looked like it was written in Greek, right? Didn't it feel that way? Like, I don't understand any of it at, at all. It makes no, no sense to me. But Jesus has to do the work in our hearts to open our eyes to see this truth, doesn't he? He says to his disciples, I have given it to you. I've given you the secret so you can understand it. You understand it because I've opened your eyes. All the others see the miracles. They see the words. They're there when all this is happening, but they can't perceive it. And why can't they perceive it? It's because they need what you need, what I need, what every man has needed from God, divine intervention. When the Bible says we're blind in our transgressions and sins, it's not suggesting that you can't see the actions written about Jesus. It's that you can't perceive the God of glory in the actions of Jesus, and therefore you never submit. You never bow your knees to God. Who is Jesus in the flesh? You just see him as a character of morality somewhere in our history. And you go, well, take it or leave it. It's just good tips for living. And that's not how Jesus presented himself to us. He described himself as the one and only. And to the people, he opens our eyes to see that. We embrace him and we love him. And there are people who he hasn't opened their eyes. And Jesus is sovereign over that. And that's what he described to his disciples. There's a third observation of the kingdom as Mark is laying out for us what you can expect in it. The third one is this, that it's uncontainable. Verse 21, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Uh, Remember, this this is a a series of statements that Mark has collected. In fact, William Barclay called it the orphan's sayings of Jesus. They're scattered all over Matthew's account, um, but he collects them here to make a point, to make a point about the kingdom, to illustrate it. And he says in this particular verse that the kingdom is like a lamp, okay? So if you're thinking opposition or the condition that we're in right now is going to kind of determine where it lands, let me just tell you about this kingdom. It's a lamp. And in this context, the lamp is the truth. It's Jesus, it, it, is, it is the gospel story and narrative, and it's every person who embrace, embraces Jesus. We are the reflection of that wonderful news, right? That is the lamp, okay? And it's uncontainable. He describes it as light, light that always defeats darkness. Always. Went out last night in the garage, pitched dark, grabbed a flashlight. Guess what won? $5 flashlight. It defeated darkness. One little battery, one little bulb. Light always wins in darkness. Light is obvious. Everyone can see it and perceive it. Light reveals. It allows us to see. The point of light is to make it and put it out there for people to use it. And that's what Jesus says is a kingdom. What you can expect is that you're going to go out there and it's going to illuminate. It's going to reveal. It's going to expose. People are going to see and it will push back on the darkness. The kingdom is like a lamp. Make sense? Here's the fourth observation of the kingdom. Verse 22, and it's this. It's not a secret anymore. Verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. You've got to believe this, that those outside looking at this Jesus guy 
and his disciples were at least confused. If, if not completely offended, it just looks like a mess to them. One writer kind of compares it to an embroidery. You take the embroidery and you turn it around, it looks like a confusing mess of knots. You turn it on the other side, it looks like a picture. And these people can only see the knots and the tangles, and they hear Jesus talk about himself being God, and they go, no, no way that guy's God. That's a mess. And even if he was God, he wouldn't come from there, and he wouldn't look like that, and he wouldn't hang out with those. That's what they would say. It's a confusing mess. It makes no sense to me. This, this grace story, we've spent our entire lives giving ourselves to law and legalism, and you're telling me it's free by faith alone? It looked like the backside of an embroidery. And, and what Jesus is trying to say is that, listen, it looks confusing now, but it's not hidden anymore. It won't be. It'll be revealed. And we are now, 2,000 years later, looking back at the wonderful picture of the gospel. The, the narrative has been concluded. It's been written. He has risen from the dead, and we are free. And they didn't see it. And he said, about the kingdom that you can expect to see, it's going to come out. They're going to get it. It will be undeniable one day. It looks small and unimpressive now, but trust me. Trust me. Let's go on. Here's the fifth observation, and that is this. The kingdom is for the attentive. Verses 23 and 24. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. These are somewhat throwaway phrases, aren't they? We just assume these are kind of filler lines that Jesus throws in before he starts another story because he said it in verse 9 after the parable of the soil. But I, I want you to know that, that it's way more important than that. In fact, the intensity of this exhortation is really hard to exaggerate. Jesus is not just kind of filling space before he starts another line. He says to the people listening, stop and listen. Listen to me is his point. In, in fact, one writer described it like you're a prisoner who's got one simple, one chance to escape. It depends upon your listening and, and solving the riddle of what Christ is saying. You're enslaved, you're trapped, and if you don't pay attention, you will spend eternity separated from God. You will pay for your sins, so please listen. Don't blow it off. Don't think it belongs to somebody else. This could be God saying something to you. And so Jesus says over and over again, every time he's talking about the kingdom, to him who has ears, listen. Pay attention to this truth. You want to escape God's judgment if you want to spend eternity in his kingdom then you can't just listen with your ears. It's got to take a 12-inch trip from here to here. And you've got to believe it and receive it, and it's got to be yours. I, um, every once in a while when I'm studying, I have a pause. I don't know if this is spirit doing it or if it's my lack of attention span. I have no idea. But I paused at this section. And I would like to believe that everybody in here is amening Jesus as king. I would like to believe that every time we sing songs about grace, that it is you, it's what you believe in. But it isn't true. It isn't true. So, some of you right now are hearing these things, and it's so familiar with you, you just shut it off. You shut it off, and you shut it off. And Jesus is saying in this passage to you, listen. Your only hope, your only shot, your only forgiveness, your only future is Christ for you and to you. Don't make the mistake of just saying somebody else's story. 
Let me ask one more. Actually, a couple more. I lied. All right. We got to hurry. Sixth observation. The kingdom of God is for the hungry. Verses 24 and 25. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In the, one of the commentaries that I read, James Edwards, The Gospel According to Mark, he writes this paragraph that's better than I can interpret. So let me just read it to you. The degree to which one hears these parables, the extent to which one allows the kingdom to break upon oneself will determine the measure of one's understanding. That's what he says Jesus is saying here. Those who hear, those who knock until the door is open will find the kingdom disclosed to them. But those of hurried search whose knock at the door of life is tentative or brief will find a once joyous invitation to enter the kingdom to have faded into a mirage of disbelief. Those to whom the mystery of the kingdom of God is given in Jesus will receive even greater capacity to enter it. On the other hand, those who fail to receive the mystery in Jesus will discover that even what he has will be taken from him. That is what Jesus is saying here. You come. And, and in your hunger, you knock and you seek and it will be yours. And Jesus says he will take your crumpled up, crippled little faith that you don't know all the parts and all the pieces and you extend it in faith to him and watch him add to it. The measure you bring, he will bring more. He will grow this thing and your faith will grow to the point where you understand Christ and you receive the king. Jesus said, in this, this world that we live in and all the opposition to me as king, what's going to happen, what you can expect to happen is this wonderful hunger and thirst that people have when they embrace Jesus for who he really is, when they knock and are persistent, when they seek this truth. Jesus says, you can be sure of this. God will grow it in you. He will grow it in you. I think it's interesting to me. You've got to make note of it. It's that phrase, um, it will be measured to you. It's passive in its tense. It just simply means that it's God who gives it out. And then some. That's what he's saying. God's going to just multiply this, this truth. It's for hungry people who ask and knock. Seventh observation. It will grow by God's power, not by yours. Verses 26 through 29. And he said, the kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the year, then the full grain in the year. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Let me ask you a question. Isn't it frustrating that you can't make someone believe this stuff? Isn't it a little bit? Just a little bit? Haven't, haven't you looked at your kid and looked him right in the eyes and they are totally not tracking with you and you want so desperately just to force it on them, but you can't. There's a guy or girl you work with. There's a neighbor down the street. There's your mom, your dad. There's relatives. There's people you've bumped into in your life and you've had what you thought was the revolutionary breakthrough conversation about the king, but you just want to grab them and kind of force it down their throat, right? You can't do it. Nothing breaks your heart more than not being able to pull them to the kingdom. Here's what I want you to see about this story. The farmer, 
in, in this particular story, we cast the seed. And the only thing the farmer can do after he scatters this truth is go to bed. Because he can't do anything about growing the crop. The rain has to come from somewhere. The germination has to happen somewhere. The roots have to take root and the plant has to grow. I can't make that happen. So here's what Jesus says. You can expect it in the kingdom. You get busy. You get busy, kingdom people, and you throw it around and then you rest. And then you rest in him. It's funny to me that the only human activity apart from the sowing is waiting. Now he waits, according to this text. He knows not how. We don't change anybody. This is the work of the king. And because, now this is a point I want to make, and because the kingdom is a work of the king, it means the harvest is certain. Do you understand if it was our work or my work? I can't get to the parking lot without messing up, okay? Because this is the work of the king, it means there's going to be a harvest. The people you thought were unpenetrable, he's going to take. He's going to change hearts and shock your world. He just will. He will radically transform your life and others' lives. He'll do more than you could ever fathom because he's the king of the harvest, right? One last thing. Three minutes. I'm doing great. <laughs> you want to know and anticipate the kingdom, then it's, you have to understand this. It will have an unimpressive beginning but a fantastic finish. Verses 30 to 32. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parables shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. You want to talk about a perfect description of this thing we call the kingdom of God, then that's it right there. How much smaller can you start this gospel story? Then this unimpressive savior from a nowhere town called Galilee, who's a kind of a self-described rabbi with a motley crew of followers, who when pressed are weak and frightened and run and scatter, they're not even in it by their own strength. How small could you be to be Jesus and 12 and a handful of others to talk, start talking about this kingdom of God come to the earth to transform the world? And it starts like this, right? I mean, I suppose if there was a seed smaller than a mustard seed, Jesus probably should have used it. You want to describe obscure, then you've just found it in the story of the gospel. God in his mystery God who made all that there is. The Bible says that Jesus sustains what we have by the word of his power. This God leaves heaven to come to the earth to be an unimpressive man in his humility. And he says to us who wait for him to return, he says to us, I know it looks small. I know it looks weak need, but trust me. Trust me how it finishes. Clearly, he uses the word larger so we can talk about size from 12 to billions 2,000 years later, billions of people say they trust in Jesus. There have been billions before us who have given their lives to Christ. Clearly, we're talking about scope, but, but it's much deeper than that. I think when Jesus is talking about the benefits of the tree in the, in the world, he's talking about the blessings of the church in the world. And he's talking about you going on mission. It's talking about you um, loving your neighbor as yourself. And when the church gets busy, loving like Christ, all those around us 
Look at how the world receives that blessing, right? I mean, people do studies about this, but churches who really get it and do it change their environments. They change societies. I mean, maybe it's like, maybe God will allow us to do something like that with the foster care and adoption thing. Maybe there's a possibility that big things in our culture that are totally train wrecked will be affected by the church getting busy because we believe in a king. Uh, Clearly, I think the way this is intended to me as well would be that I know it looks like it's a Hebrew thing. I know it looks like an exclusive club over here, but this gospel story, this kingdom story is for anybody and everybody. I know it started over here, over in this small little place in the side of the world, and I know you may have been outside of it and you've got no cultural sensitivity to it, but I just want you to know the gospel has come to all peoples, all colors, all shades, everywhere on the planet. That's how big this kingdom story is. So if you're thinking these Pharisees and these leaders are going to put some kind of opposition on this kingdom talk, trust me how it ends. That's what Jesus says. Trust me, it's the kingdom of God come. So I've got two so what's, okay? If you're a believer, by that I mean you have put your faith and trust in Christ and you've repented of your sins, this stuff should make you worship. He has such great ideas, doesn't he? Awesome. And two, if you're not a believer, then I'm imploring you to listen. I'm imploring you to come to Jesus. Lay down whatever wasted version of sorting things invented and take up his perfect provision as your king and watch what he does. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for these, these parables that describe this kingdom that we are a part of as your people. It blows our mind that you are um, so powerful and so in control, and so loving, and so good, and so faithful, that we look at this gospel story, and we look at what you're doing in this world, and your plan will not be thwarted. Your intentions will happen. So God, we as your people submit to you. All we can do is celebrate you, and worship you, and say thank you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.